So what would you say if you were having a conversation with a friend and they asked you, is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? Now, put simply, you would say either yes or no. But why? Why yes? What's behind that? Why do you believe or why no? Why don't you believe? And this is the fifth of the seven big questions that we are considering uh, alongside nearly 30 other churches in the local community as together we explore God this fall. The question, is Jesus really God? Now, for some, it's a question that they just, they take for granted. Uh, Maybe you grew up in the church or you've believed for many years and you just have never really thought about, why do I really believe? Or for others, it's just a question to dismiss. There's just no way. It doesn't make sense. Why would I even think about it? But have you really, have you really deep down considered, have you thought, have you investigated and examined the evidence? Uh, Have you come to a reasonable, a rational conclusion for either why you believe or why you don't believe? Because when you boil it down, it is an important question. And it's basically the question uh, that Jesus asks his disciples in Mark uh, chapter 8. In Mark 8, Jesus and his disciples are going from village to village, uh, preaching and teaching, healing. And Mark 8, picking up with verse 27. And on the way, Jesus asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question before us today. Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus really God? Well, the first thing I want us to talk about is, why is this an important question? You know, why why even consider this question in the first place? Well, put simply, uh, it's because Jesus is the single most influential person who ever lived. Okay, do you realize that today a higher percentage of the world's population than ever before is Christian? Nearly 50,000 people become Christians, become followers of Jesus, nearly 50,000 people a day. Okay, that's nearly 19 million new followers of Jesus each year. Amen, you're right. Of the, of the great world leaders, Christian, or world religions, Christianity is the most equally distributed around the globe. A British scholar Richard Balcom notes, that no other faith has so extensively crossed the cultural divisions of humanity and found a place in so many diverse cultural contexts. So as as some of you know, before moving to Williamsburg, uh, Heather and I lived on the west coast of Canada. Uh, We lived in the the city of Vancouver where I did my graduate work and then served uh, as a pastor at a PCA church plant there. 
And while in Vancouver, uh, Heather was a, a small group leader at our church, uh, and in our group was a young woman named Adrian. Uh, Adrian was about 20 years old. She had immigrated to Canada from Singapore. Uh, she was not a Christian, uh, but she was interested in spiritual things. And I'll never forget the Saturday morning that she called us. She had been coming to church for a while and had been a part of our small group for a while. And she called and she said, can, can I come over and, and ask you a question? And we said, sure. And, and, and I said, would you rather just talk about it on the phone? I wasn't trying to put her off, but she lived an hour outside of the city. And she said, no, no, I, I really want to come see you in person. And so we said, yeah, come on, we're here. And so about an hour later, she showed up. We invited her in. We offered her something to drink. And she said, no, I, I just want to ask something. And so she sat on the edge of our couch, and she said, I, I just want to make sure that I'm hearing things correctly. Because all that I've been hearing over these past weeks and months, it, it's intriguing, but I've got to admit, it, it's a bit strange, too. And I just want to know that I'm hearing it right. And so this historical man, Jesus, so he lived 2,000 years ago. He grew up in, in what was an unimportant small village in the Middle East, lived this quiet life as a carpenter until he was 30. And then he all of a sudden started off in this three years of preaching and doing great things, and people just flocked to him and followed him. But then there was a turn and, and public opinion uh, turned on him, his friends deserted him, the Romans crucified him where he died on a cross. And this man, Jesus, so he was also God, who died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven and live with him forever. So am I, am I, am I hearing this right? Is that, is that the gist? I remember Heather and I looked at each other and looked at Adrian and said, yeah, I mean, that pretty much sums it up. And she said, thank you. And she got up and she left. And she left that day wrestling. She left that day thinking. She had heard, but she was wrestling with our question. Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus really God? Well, again, it's an important question precisely because Jesus is the single most influential person who ever lived. I mean, when you think about it throughout the world, Jesus is the demarcation for our very concept of time. I mean, even when B.C. and A.D. were changed on our timelines, it doesn't change the fact that it is still the life of Jesus that divides our history. And one more thing. Of all the significant world religions, Jesus is the only religious leader who actually claimed to be God. So if he really is who he says he is, then this really is an important question. So that's why we're talking about it. Well, the second thing that I want us to talk about is what did Jesus say? You know, what did he actually claim with regard to divinity? Well, Jesus said a lot of things. He said a lot of things about being God. He made lots of indirect claims, uh, lots of direct claims. 
So here, here are a few uh, of his indirect claims. In, in Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus, he's assuming authority to forgive all sins. Not just those against an individual, but all people's sins. In John 6, Jesus declares that he alone could give eternal life. And then more than that, if you go to John 11, you see that Jesus claims that not only does he have the power to overcome death, but that he himself is that power. And these are all things that can only be attributed to God, to God alone. Well, of course, more clear are his direct claims. In John 10, Jesus clearly states, I am the Son of God. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to Father God except through me. And whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Mark 14, we read that the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus replied, I am. I mean, it is a big deal, a big deal for a mere man to claim to be God. For anybody that takes God seriously, this is a big deal, even scandalous. So I think back to in college, I I think of of three of my friends. uh, Their religious views were quite uh, different than mine. Uh, Zaki, Awesome, and Murad. They were from, uh, from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we had some, some great conversations. They were devout uh, Muslims, so we talked about the differences between Islam and Christianity. Uh, now, I was a, a part of a campus ministry group, and like a lot of campus ministry groups, whenever we had a, a special event or a special speaker, we would advertise that, and sometimes we would you know, post flyers around campus and, and in the dorms. And one day I realized that my Muslim friends were taking down some of the flyers that had a Bible verse on them that had a a reference to Jesus being God. And so I went and I asked them about it. And they looked at me very seriously and they said, Camper, we thought you took God seriously. I mean, this is not good. This is not acceptable. This is scandalous. It is blasphemy. Because again, for people that take God seriously, it is a big deal for a mere man to claim to be God. Well, possibly the most scandalous statement that Jesus made about himself being God, it can be found in John 8. And so toward the, the end of John 8, we find that Jesus, he's at the end of a long conversation with Jewish religious leaders, and he's in the temple. And he attributes to himself the divine name, I am, declaring himself to be Yahweh. Yahweh, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. Uh, We read in John 8, uh, beginning uh, verse 56, and this is Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking to the Jewish religious leaders, and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So back in Exodus chapter 3, the eternal, unchangeable, glorious, almighty God of heaven and earth declares that his name is I am. Here, John chapter 8, Jesus declares that his name is I am. Jesus is claiming to be God. Yahweh, the great I am. He is claiming to be this eternal, unchangeable, glorious, almighty God. Now someone might read that and, and think, no, I, I'm not sure that's what he means. But I mean, really, if anyone thinks that maybe this isn't what Jesus meant, that maybe we're just we're reading too much into the text, we need only consider the response of those Jesus was talking to. Verse 59 those who take, who take God very seriously, they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew what Jesus was doing. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be God, and they were ready to stone him for blasphemy. And so could Jesus merely be just a great moral teacher, like many consider him today? You know, throughout his ministry, Jesus claimed to be God. I mean, here we have a man who walked the earth and claimed to be God Almighty day after day after day. And so some, some might say that Jesus was insane, a stark, raving lunatic. Okay, that's one option. Others might say that Jesus was a fraud, a habitual, premeditated liar. It's another option. But you can't simply say that he was just a good man or a great moral teacher. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or a liar. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So is Jesus really God? Is he who he says he is? Well, he claimed to be. But what did he do? What did he actually do? Did he do anything consistent with those claims? And so let's talk about that. And that's the third and final thing that I want us to talk about. What did Jesus do? Well, the gospel writer John, uh, one of the original disciples, uh, he records in the first half of his gospel, he records seven signs or miracles, all pointing to Jesus as Son of God and Savior of the world. In John's account of Jesus' life and ministry, we see Jesus change water into wine, heal an official's dying son, heal a crippled man, feed over 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, walk on water, 
heal a man born blind and raise Lazarus from the dead. Now John says at the end of his gospel that Jesus did many other signs and miracles, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, we're not going to talk about any of those, because for our purposes today, I want to focus on one historical event, the most significant sign. The most significant outward act of divine power that Jesus did is seen in the resurrection. If Jesus really overcame sin and death and rose from the dead, it matters. It matters eternally. And now we're not talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about being merely revived. We are talking about resurrection from the dead, raised to to new life, a whole new plane of existence, completely whole, no more dying. Now, some of you know a little bit about the history of this church, and you might know that Grace Covenant has met in various locations over the years. Uh, The church was started in the early 70s, has only gathered in this building for the past 15 years. Now, I find one of the most interesting places that this church ever met was at Bucktrout Funeral Home. Okay, funeral home, corner of Ironbound and Strawberry Plains, you know, over near Newtown. A funeral home. And when they met there, some of you were there, but when they met there, there were always dead bodies just on the other side of the curtain. And that would be a little creepy. But can you imagine one Sunday morning just like that, knowing that the dead bodies are over there, one of those dead bodies gets up on its own, new life, walks in to worship with you. I I think it'd be a little bit of a distraction. But I guarantee you, no one would ever forget it. No one would ever forget that moment. Well, that's what happened to Jesus. What Jesus did, he rose from the dead on his own. New life. A whole new plane of existence. Now, I realize that a lot of people think the resurrection is myth. That it didn't really happen. Uh, and, and, and I get that. I mean, that's, that's where our friend Adrian was. That's what she was wrestling with. But have you ever really investigated and considered the historical evidence behind it? The historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is impressive. There's a lot to study there. Uh, It's been presented by scholars over the years, uh, massive scholarly support most recently by researchers like uh, N.T. Wright and his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, Even more recently, uh, Michael R. Lacona, the resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach. Now, I commend those books to you. I will let you know they are over 700 pages each, so they really are massive scholarly support. But you can still find some solid, brief overviews for the evidence and the arguments. Uh, you might check out uh, Richard Baucom's Jesus, a very short introduction, uh, Tim Keller's Making Sense of God, and John Stott's classic, Basic Christianity. As one writer points out, 
that of all these scholars, these scholars argue that as long as you do not begin with an imposed philosophical bias against the possibility of miracles, the resurrection has as much attestation as any other ancient historical event. And there are, there, there are three, basic, three basic lines of evidence that converge here, and, and we're just going to quickly go through them. So, Exhibit A. Exhibit A is the empty tomb. I mean, without an empty tomb, Christianity never gets off the ground. Because from day one, followers of Jesus, those of the Christian faith, have proclaimed a resurrected Lord since the very beginning. And so if the body could have been found and put on display, it most certainly would have. Because there is no way that when Jesus was crucified, the Jews and the Romans did not want this new Jesus following to continue. They wanted it dead. German scholar Paul Althus states that the claim of the resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. The tomb was empty. And also there's no record of early Christians making Jesus' tomb a place of pilgrimage. I mean, it certainly would have if his body had been there. I mean, we do the same thing today. We go and we visit grave sites of loved ones, of great ones, I mean, you know, think about the tomb of Elvis. You know, if, 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 if he was really still alive, folks would not flock to Memphis every year to go to his tomb. They just wouldn't. And so historians see the empty tomb as a given. And that leads to Exhibit B. Exhibit B, the eyewitnesses. Uh, the credibility of the eyewitnesses. So about 20 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, in his public letter to the Corinthians, what we now have is 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm thinking specifically of verses 3 to 8. But there Paul acknowledges that there were hundreds of people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. Hundreds of people. Public letter. He even gives names of some of them. And what he is getting at, and he is saying, is that, that most of these folks are still alive. If you want to hear their testimony, go talk to them. Go talk to those people that were at Grace Covenant at Buck Trout Funeral Home the day that that dead guy got up. Go talk to them. They're alive. Well, also, uh, another thing that he points out is, is many times it was large groups that, that Jesus appeared to. And so that rules out what many have, have said, oh, it was just hallucinations. It rules out this theory of hallucinations, uh, just coming out of a, a wish fulfillment because hallucinations don't happen to hundreds of people at once. And then another peculiar thing about these eyewitnesses. So the very first eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, they were women. Women. Now why was that 
a big deal. Well, it's a big deal because at that time, women were of low social status. I mean, so much so that they were not even allowed to testify in court. It just wouldn't even be considered. And so why would any writer include them as eyewitnesses if it was a made-up story? The only reason to report women as the very first eyewitnesses was if they actually were the very first eyewitnesses. Balcom states that all this suggests that the stories were not simply invented. And so one could reasonably conclude that many people actually saw Jesus. They actually did see him alive after the crucifixion. And that leads to Exhibit C. Exhibit C is the changed lives of the disciples. The changed lives of the disciples. The resurrection of Jesus had a profound impact on those early followers. It still does today, but we're going to focus on those early followers. Uh, Tim Keller points out that despite the fact that they were poor, few, and marginal, Jesus' followers developed a confidence and fearlessness that enabled them to spread the gospel gladly, even at the cost of their own lives, often suffering horrible deaths. Some have thought that the disciples stole the body, but people don't die for a hoax. N.T. Wright and Richard Balkum point out that there were several messianic pretenders at the time who died in their attempt to establish themselves. And in each case, their movements withered immediately on the argument that their death proved that they could not have been the Messiah. And for sure, the very same thing would have happened here if Jesus' story had ended with his death on the cross. But it didn't. Balkum concludes that we must come up with a historically plausible alternative explanation for why thousands of monotheistic Jews would overnight come to believe that a human being was the risen Son of God and then go out and die for their faith. We've got to come up with something else. And Keller notes... If we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians in some other way, we may find ourselves making even greater leaps of faith than if we believed in the resurrection itself. Is Jesus really God? Yes. But it's not just enough for me to tell you that for your friend over conversation, or for you to tell that friend. Because we've got to each personally answer this question ourselves. And Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Well, as our Explore God groups discussed, simply put, in order to right the wrongs of the world, God entered his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He bore the burden of our shortcomings for us. 
And then he rose from the grave to defeat the power of sin, brokenness, and death in the world. This was done so that when we abandon our own efforts, which always fall short, and simply accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, our relationship with God is restored. And we, like Jesus, are given new life in order to become all that God has made us to be. And as we heard earlier this morning, as we sang, Jesus says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Come to me, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are truly God. God who came to us and for us to save us. And so we pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would convince our hearts more and more of this great truth. 